And this change reportedly increases the affinity to bind to the ACE2 receptors, which are uh, the fundamental receptor for the coronavirus. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the January 6th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objectives are discuss changes in SARS-CoV-2 since the Wuhan strain was identified, and discuss implications of newer variants on vaccine development. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Awater, thank you for joining us and Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year, everybody. I hope everyone's family has stayed safe and well. The, the topic I thought would be good to catch up on would be the SARS coronavirus 2 responsible for COVID-19 and really what, what's happened to it genetically over the last year. And of course, the viral variant, uh, which was first described in the United Kingdom, has uh, really gotten a lot of people's attention, and we'll go into some of those details. But let's uh, go back uh, over a year ago, the original uh, strain, uh, some called the Wuhan or L strain, uh, the DG14614 uh, uh, was really what was seen through much of January and February, but was quickly uh, replaced by the so-called G substitution, um, such that by June, it really was the dominant uh, coronavirus that was seen in all patients. Now, there is no sense that there was a change in virulence. However, the, the change um, uh, suggested that uh, perhaps there was differences in the spike protein that led to more transmissibility, mainly uh, witnessed through higher viral loads uh, when uh, respiratory samples were analyzed. And there's certainly a strain of thought that uh, the more virus someone is shedding, the greater the transmission, and perhaps also the higher acuity of illness, but uh, nothing was really seen along the illness side yet. So uh, let's move ahead to this past fall when in the United Kingdom, this variant SARS-CoV-2 was seen. I'll go into more details for a moment, but this was picked up also in the context of what appeared to be uh, increasing uh, rates that were uh, far faster than seen earlier in the spring around London, sort of south and eastern England. Now, the United Kingdom also does a fair amount of uh, sequencing of virus as a routine throughout the country. 
And they found that this variant uh, was precisely uh, in the same locations as increased case rates and hospitalizations. Recently, Imperial College has suggested that the so-called reproduction factor where uh, by this new variant might increase uh, by approximately 0.7, 70%. Now, uh, for successful control of a virus, you want to have the reproductive number below one, which means that if you're sick, you're going to be not exposing at least one person uh, or more to uh, infection. So as you increase that number, uh, that means you as a an infected person are likely to spread it to others. But of course, there's a ver huge variance and also uh, super spreader events. Now, this uh, increased rate of transmission in the UK was picked up in November and uh, resulted in some additional changes and restrictions, but this had made little impact. And I think uh, many of you know that just yesterday, the United Kingdom, um, and I'm speaking today on uh, January 6th, but Yesterday, the United Kingdom went into its third, no, I'm sorry, fourth lockdown, I believe. Interestingly, at least uh, with my colleagues that I've been speaking with there, they're anticipating at least a six-week strict lockdown and home isolation that might even extend uh, months beyond. Now, this is in spite of immunization, which will certainly be a future uh, topic of discussion. But let's uh, talk about this variant strain. Now, the, the Centers for Disease Control calls it a variant of concern. Uh, I think many of us are referring it to as B117. Now, this has accumulated 23 mutations since the original Wuhan strain uh, and a really uh, marked change in amino acids, so over 14. And eight of these occur in the spike protein alone, which is responsible for viral entry into cells. So the three areas that get a lot of discussion is the so-called N501Y. And this change reportedly increases the affinity to bind to the ACE2 receptors, which are uh, the fundamental receptor for the coronavirus. Another mutation, which is actually deletion, has been linked to the farm minks uh, that were uh, culled in many parts of the world, especially Denmark. And the uh, issues there were whether the cycling through the minks could potentially cause further uh, changes and affect the virus. And then lastly, there's a P681H. This is close to something called the furan cleavage site. And this cleavage site is in the spike protein and is also thought that changes there could uh, be responsible for increasing viral replication and therefore fostering more transmission. So as I mentioned, this was first identified in 2020 um, and why the United Kingdom, as we've mentioned, is because uh, far more than other countries, including the United States, Germany, and others, they routinely sequence the virus, but we now know that it's present in at least 33 countries and at least four states it has been identified that are listed here, including patients with no travel. And I misspoke a bit before, but it's the third lockdown um, for England. The, the implications uh, are as follows. We know that the growth rate of this, at least when looked uh, at in cells, uh, in animal studies, and the thought is also in human specimens, 
that the so-called cycle threshold, that is when you do a PCR, that you're finding levels that are about too lower than earlier strains, which suggests there's much more virus in the respiratory secretions. And, and the fact that this has become so quickly prevalent uh, in areas of the world suggests that there must be some kind of selective advantage. So I think this is going to replace the uh, D614G mutation uh, largely across the world. Now, uh, so far, public health authorities don't think it's causing any worse disease severity, but there are increasing numbers, which is why hospitals are full. Um, it does appear to be detected by routine testing because the PCR uh, uses primaries with multiple targets, such as the N and so on. Now, where there may be some concerns are that some of the monoclonal antibody products, which we've discussed, may not work as well. Of course, this is only theoretical. We're not sure about that. I think many vaccine experts and virologists feel that the current uh, vaccines that are uh, authorized emergently or fully approved in some countries based on the spike protein uh, should still be sufficient uh, because these uh, viral variants are really 99% similar uh, to earlier strains for which the, the spike protein was taken from. So um, the thought is this will certainly be watched very carefully and there's always concerns for immune escape. There are two other uh, variants that I thought are worth mentioning that you may hear in the news. There's another uh, from South Africa that has multiple mutations and also has this N501Y mutation, but it doesn't have the deletion uh, component. So far, not too much is known. And the thought is that uh, greater surveillance across the African continent is necessary. Uh, South Africa is extremely hard hit right now, uh, especially in coastal cities. And the concern is that this virus might be more virulent. I, I think that is still uncertain, uh, but uh, this at least this uh, viral variant is correlating with a marked increase in cases, in cases requiring hospitalization. Then lastly, there is a isolate from Nigeria. This only has that uh, change in the spike protein near the furin cleavage site. Doesn't have any other of the mutations emerged uh, as far as we can tell, uh, perhaps in the summer. Um, Nigeria is one of 12 uh, centers in Africa that are sequencing virus. And, and we don't know as much about this, but I think everyone, you'll be hearing more and more. And this, I think, always uh, <laughs> Uh, reminds me a bit of the HIV epidemic, and as we introduced therapies, we had to be vigilant of certain mutations that certainly had uh, greater importance in terms of therapeutics, but may also uh, impact uh, viral decisions. So I, I unfortunately think this uh, new variant likely will uh, is here to stay and probably is uh, more prevalent than we understand at the moment. And uh, further sequencing of isolates in other countries will give us some idea of its prevalence. I think the current vaccine strategies hopefully should still work, but for example, the BioNTech company, which made the uh, Pfizer uh, vaccine, uh, made the comment that mRNA vaccines actually can be changed if necessary relatively easily. 
and that these could be put in production in as little as six weeks. So one of the benefits of this new technology is it's much easier to make these uh, new vaccines uh, as long as the supply chains hold out as opposed to uh, inactivated viruses, which are really uh, more complicated to make and take a longer time. And of course, uh, would be uh, more difficult to uh, change on a dime. Thanks for listening. And I think we'll uh, uh, touch on uh, vaccines further uh, next week. But uh, Faith, I think we uh, do have a couple of questions. Yes, we do. And our first learner question is, vitamin D is once again suggested by some to have a role in COVID severity. What do you think about this? Yeah, so this association of hypovitaminosis D and respiratory illness has been around for a while. It's been linked uh, to influenza, for example, also uh, COVID-19 and some other respiratory infections. I think the, the issue that we really don't know is does supplementation truly help? Um, this is a, a field fraught with disappointments, for example, vitamin C for severe sepsis, vitamin E, uh, trying to improve health and causing uh, prothrombosis. So, you know, vitamin D has been an issue uh, for some years. It's, it seems to be usually uh, for almost everyone relatively benign therapy. I certainly know some physicians that are supplementing patients uh, with COVID-19, especially if they have uh, depressed immune systems. But I think the evidence basis for this is, is slight at the moment. So. Um, I don't think you'll see any official recommendations, but it is an area of uh, study and I think worth uh, addressing in a prospective manner. Okay, thank you. And our next question is, what is your opinion about the UK's vaccination program? Um, so their mix and match or their one dose program? Yeah, so this is uh, very interesting. So, you know, I think the biggest question is how we can get more people immunized quickly. Now, if you're short of vaccine supply, then I think many people are entertaining strategies such as delaying the second dose, or even in the UK's uh, sense, since they're all spike protein vaccines of one form or another, uh, you just get what you can get at any given time and not really fret too much about being consistent. I think what this opens up is a lot of questions. We really don't know about the durability of one dose and really how successful it is. This is all data extrapolated from phase three trials, which uh, for the most part, except for people that didn't go back for a second dose, we're really looking at you know, what levels of protection were gained between three to four weeks after the first immunization. Uh, we don't know too much about durability, loss of follow-up, um, especially if, if people defer. And certainly by mixing vaccines, we're really um, not as sure whether you'll get as much boost as you should. So, you know, I think many are hesitant to go down that path just because I think it's uncertain. I think the public health emergency in many countries has fostered early use of unproven vaccines. And, and these are unproven strategies that have some biologic plausibility for success. So I think these are important questions that you have to weigh ethics, uh, plausibility, um, likelihood of success, and also I think uh, definitely requires uh, monitoring. So, you know, if, if you have the capability of getting the vaccine 
in people. Uh, these are strategies that I think everyone is at least thinking about given the crisis at hand. Uh, on the other hand, if we really don't have uh, the ability to get the vaccine into somebody, I, I, I think it's foolish to consider that. And certainly in the United States, the problem is more the logistics of getting the vaccine into people at the moment than the vaccine supply. So um, my thought would be that this probably shouldn't be pursued at this time, but uh, I think we'll just have to wait and see, Faith. Dr. Allwater, thank you again for those updates. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again, Dr. Allwater. Yeah, thank you very much. Look forward to speaking uh, more, uh, especially about vaccines with the next program and hope everyone has a, a better start to 2021. And I do think each month will get better and better. So uh, thanks so much for listening.